This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. What was the acceptance rate? Like how many people entered with you and how many actually became a SEAL? So we started with uh, 206 when we classed up and 17 originals graduated. An ultimate test in physical and mental fatigue. And so period Sunday afternoon until Friday, uh, about that same time around dinner time or late afternoon, that entire six day period you get about two and a half hours of sleep total, mm. um, not not per night. That's for the entire time. Yeah. And so being in a helicopter, getting shot at, and, and clipping power lines, and almost crashing, or getting ambushed, uh, you know, right outside of uh, Saddam's palace in Tikrit, or you know, I mean, all, all any host of other stupid things. You were crazy. a part of that. Yeah, you got ambushed. Yes. Welcome back to the Digital Social Hour. I'm your host, Sean Kelly. I'm here with my co-host, Wayne Lewis. What up, what up? And our guest today, Mike Ritland. How's it going? Mike. Good, good. I appreciate you having me. Absolutely. Navy SEAL, man. Man. Well, first Navy SEAL, right? He's our first Navy SEAL? First one. First Navy yeah. SEAL. I mean, if I can pop the cherry, I'm, I'm happy to do it. That's so, always good. So what was that process like when you were deciding to become one? Did you want to or did it just sort of happen? So when I uh, I was in high school, I was uh, a runt in high school. Like my freshman and sophomore year, I was tiny and I got uh, beat up a lot. And uh, mm. a combination of that and both my grandfather serving in World War II, which uh, I don't know how dated this will be, but today being the, the Normandy anniversary, um, I was just really heavily influenced by, by both of them and kind of service to the country and, and just felt frankly obligated but i i was uh incentivized or motivated to serve and I, mm. it was just always something that i wanted to do and um so it was kind of a, a progression that way but there was a kind of a light switch moment for me when i was in high school with uh just reading a, a popular mechanics article that had everything about the seal teams in it and it said it was the you know the toughest u.s military training and kind of described the process the yeah. missions the equipment uh, and really, from that day forward, I was just uh, I was pretty hell bent on doing it. So wow! wow. So you like doing tough things? <laughs> well, I, I mean, sort of. I mean, it's kind of like with most people. I think that I like to challenge myself, mm -hmm. and, and I like to uh, to test you know my my ability or capability to to overcome certain adversities. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, for me, it, because it was labeled uh, you know the U.S. military's toughest training, that that made me want to do it. You know, so yeah. was it? It was it tough. It was tough. I mean, you know, just like with most things, there's, yeah. you know, I did every every bit of research I could, uh, you know, to prepare for it. And there were things that surprised me both ways. There were mm -hmm. things that weren't as hard as I thought that they would be. And there was things that were uh, 10x harder than I thought that they would be. What so. was the acceptance rate? Like how many people entered with you and how many actually became a SEAL? So we started with uh, 206 when we classed up and 17 originals graduated. So Whoa. It's under 10%. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty high, high attrition rate. Yeah. yeah that's crazy. Well, they and put you through some strenuous training though, bro. You, they, they do. I will say. It I mean, was like the hardest thing, the hardest thing that you, that you've done in training 
you were like, how in the hell did I even get past this? Mm. You know, for me, the it, it's hard to, to pinpoint or pick one specific instance. <laughs> it's uh, all hard. It's all hard. But I, <laughs> I will say, for me, I think that that's really the hardest part is, is that it's it's a succession of every single day getting kicked in the nuts over and over and over. Mm-hmm. And it feels like it's never going to end, you know. So um, I, I don't think like if you were to, to take any one day of training, most people could could gut it out. You know, if they're mm-hmm. you know reasonably healthy and in decent shape, right. could push themselves to, to get through a day of yeah. training. But doing it for six and a half months straight every single day, it just it wears on you. And, right. and you know, wow. it, wait, it, wait, it, wait, 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 six months. Yeah. You get weekends off, though. Uh, in some of it, um, it, it, it depends on, on which por- days, portion Yeah, that's like... Yeah. I thought we were talking about six weeks here I, uh, at max. Yeah, it's, it's uh, six <laughs> and a half months of, of BUDS, which is basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And then after that, there's another year and change of training before you get the, the Trident pin that, that actually says you, you made it and you're a Navy SEAL. So it's, it's a long process. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, the you know, I think for most guys, you know, like when I graduated, I had seven stress fractures in my legs, and and most people do. Uh, there's a lot of injuries, pinched nerves, and, and broken bones, and compressed spines, or cracked vertebrae, or you know, there's a, a lot of wow. kind of overuse injuries like that that uh, that just break you down over time, and all of that kind of set aside for a second. The the toughest part about it really is the mental aspect mm-hmm. is kind of the mind games that they play. An example would be, uh, you know, surf torture, which is where you're interlocked arms with, with the guy on either side of you and you march out into the water about to, you know, knee deep. Yo, I seen that. I seen yeah. that. I seen and, that on a documentary. And yeah. And, and then they, they have you lay down and you just lay there and, and the waves crash over you. You know, and this is in San Diego where the water's not particularly warm, especially in the wintertime. It can be down in the 50s. And, and they have specific dive tables or, or charts that they'll say, okay, if it's the ambient temp is 60 and the water temp is 58, mm-hmm. we can keep them in for 17 minutes before we have to take them out for this many minutes. And then we can put them back in for this amount of time. So it's very structured that way based on, you know, hypothermia and, and what the body can withstand, mm-hmm. but they push that envelope nonstop. But then they also add an element of, of mental fatigue where, uh, you know, we as students, and I spent the last three and a half years as an instructor, so I, I got to see both sides of it. But uh, as students, you have no idea when you're going in or how long you're going to be in when you're getting out. And so they would act like we're going to go back in, you know, like been in and out five, six times. And then they would say, you know, OK, forward march. And we'd walk out, you know, and, and get to the point where you're just about ready to sit back down. And then they would they would pull you back out. But on the way back out, half a dozen guys would quit because they'd just be like, this i can't do so it so the water is splashing in wow. your nose and your face yeah and, and so it's keep, almost like drowning it is i mean it's like getting waterboarded almost Jeez. you know i mean but keep in mind this is salt water with sand and kelp and you know you, you get to where you know the entire time in training you're pretty much always wet you know and, and so in full clothes you're running out you you get you know wet and sandy and roll around in the sand and so you've got salt water and, and everything's chafing you know, your, your thighs and your nipples, I mean, everything is, is just torn to shreds and, and you're constantly wet and going back and forth. And yeah, I mean, it's just getting, getting uh, punished and, and tortured almost every, every day, all day. So that's wild. And I've heard about hell week. So what's different from hell week versus just the normal training? So hell week is, is kind of, um, an ultimate test in that, in everything that I've talked about and in, in physical and mental fatigue. And so 
they, they move the time period around a little bit. Um, it's generally a little past halfway through the first phase of training. There's three phases. Each are about two months long. And so uh, around that fifth or sixth week of, of first phase, you go and, and it starts Sunday uh, afternoon, early evening. So you've been up all day at that point getting everything ready. And then they do what's called breakout, which is where it's kind of like kicking a hornet's nest over ambush style where there's guns going off and smoke smoke bombs and fire hoses and sirens. And it's just total chaos for uh, you know a few hours. And you're running back and forth to the surf zone and they're grabbing guys and hiding them and making you do head counts and, and screaming. And, and it's just total chaos. Uh, that hap- that lasts for a few hours and then it goes into from, from that period, Sunday afternoon until Friday, uh, about that same time around dinner time or late afternoon, that entire six day period, you get about two and a half hours of sleep total. Mm. Uh, not, not per night. That's for the entire time. Yeah. And so that, that whole rest of the time you're running with boats on your heads, you're carrying logs, you're swimming, you're paddling boats out past the surf zone. Uh, you know, you're running, you run several hundred miles that week, um, and you're in boots and pants. Um, and, and there's all of these specific evolutions that have been around for decades that are designed to challenge you and get people to quit. And so, uh, you know, for me, one of the, one of the, (laughs) I mean, one of, one of the things that, that really kind of drove me honestly was when I showed up, I was the same height I am now, uh, but I weighed 140 pounds and, uh, you know, so I, I was a smaller guy and you'd see guys that had played division one football, you know, college wrestlers that were all Americans, hockey players, uh, you know, you name it, water polo studs, these dudes that physically were, you know, much, much more talented or gifted than I was. And, and I would see them quit, you know, in front of me. And for me, that, that just, uh, overwhelmingly fueled me to keep going to see mm-hmm. a guy that I would look at. And, and most people would look at and be like, yeah, This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. that guy's going to make it this guy isn't and to see that guy quit and and really where you see the difference is that you know the the more gifted the athlete the more talented they are generally the less hard that they've had to work you know they've Mm. had coaches that have coddled them or or it just wasn't that hard for them they didn't have to work as hard as as the guy that that wasn't talented but was driven to do it and so you you would see this kind of paradigm shift uh, mentally in in the class or in students as you went along uh, where it would kind of weed out the guys that uh, that d- just didn't have what it took, you know, and wow. and that's really the uh, the meat and potatoes of the entire training process is it, it's a selection process. It's mm. it's really the Navy trying to to weed out the people that when you're overseas and goes completely sideways, is they want to know that you're going to be there and no matter how bad it gets, uh, that that you're just going to keep going and, and they're going to kill you. Chaos. Yeah, wow. yeah, and and that's you know, so they make it as chaotic as possible, but. Uh, you can only make it so chaotic and still be training. You know, mm-hmm. uh, we all knew that ultimately, like, yes, people do die in training. And, and sometimes they do. Does, it does happen, wow. uh, you know, but uh, but it's rare uh, and it's it's certainly not the norm. And, and the intention is, is that they mitigate every uh, every potential disaster or life threatening scenario to the best of their ability. You can only be so safe. It's kind of like racing cars or motorcycles right. or, or whatever. 
is that you you know you can only make things so safe but uh, at the end of the day you still know it's training it's not real world and, and having been mm-hmm. to Iraq and uh, been put in positions where you know you're in a in a town where you know the majority of that the population of that town is actively trying to take your life you know that just puts a different spin on everything you know mm-hmm. no matter how much training you've been through no matter how tough it's been no matter how challenged you've been going into that environment where now it's real and, and people are shooting back at you and 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 you also know that that if god forbid you get wounded and not when they capture you you know the the atrocities that are going to take place if that happens mm. you know th- those are all things that you're thinking about as you're doing uh, you know different operations and so uh, you know that that you cannot replicate no matter how tough training is it's still not real world, you know, so uh, they get as close as they can, but, uh, and they do a good job. I mean, it, it is tough. And, and so how do you feel that training or being in those and being in that situation shaped you and shaped your life moving forward? I would say the biggest to pinpoint, the biggest thing, it would be confidence. Uh, mm-hmm. Not that I was insecure or, or lacking a ton of confidence going in. I mean, I felt good and, and was confident. But the, the minute you make it through Hell Week and you go from wearing a, a white T-shirt underneath your, your uh, BDUs to wearing a brown T-shirt, as dumb as that probably sounds, like the shift of knowing, like, I made it through Hell Week and, and the percentage of people mm-hmm. that, that join the Navy and, and ultimately try to become a SEAL, the, the, there's so few people that, that make it to that point. It, it's I mean, it's very much like a light switch of confidence where, like, now you feel like, you can do anything, you know, and, and, you know, the reality of it is, is that, and this is for all human beings is that, you know, most limitations that, that are put on, on ourselves are a hundred percent self-imposed, um, you know, and, and your, your body and your mind and, and just your abilities are, are far higher than, than most people ever realize, conceptualize or, or maximize because, you know, they, they just don't have that mental, uh, puzzle piece, you know, that, that, kind of finishes that puzzle and makes people understand that they're they're capable of of so much more than they realize and mm-hmm. uh, and so there there are a lot of other things whether it's you know physical confidence um you know just understanding what my body was capable of um you know from a training standpoint you know you, you get uh, competent at certain skill sets with you know whether it's combative shooting demolition diving parachuting all of those things <clears throat> certainly makes you understand what you're capable of there but the the biggest thing that, that really kind of i would say uh overshadows all of that is just that mental confidence of realizing mm. like i can do whatever i want i can mm. do anything you know mm. and, and that's served me very very well business-wise and entrepreneurial and in, in that you know no matter how things are um like i I never panic i'm I'm always weather the storm yeah you know i I don't ever sweat anything because you know again when you compare it to being in a helicopter getting shot at and and clipping power lines and almost crashing or getting ambushed uh you know right outside of uh, saddam's palace in tikrit or you know i mean all all, any host of other stupid things you were a part of that yeah you got ambushed yeah so uh we we were in iraq we were uh we had moved our, our way all the way up from, uh, we drove from, from Kuwait after mm-hmm. taking down the oil rigs right before the war started um, and, uh, and drove all the way up to the northern part of the country into, into Tikrit, which is Saddam's hometown. Uh, he had a palace there that, that our goal the night before, mm-hmm. as we rolled up to the southern uh, edge of the city, was to move in and, and with the 1st Marine Division take down uh, his palace. And so kind of had all of our... Uh, um, marching orders if you will and we were we were dirt di- diving the night before 
we had pulled up on this road and, and we were meeting with the Marine leadership there. And, uh, all of a sudden it was like, uh, all hell broke loose. And, uh, so we all got into a quick kind of lazy L, uh, anti ambush formation, got our night vision on, excuse me. And, uh, noticed there was a guy from, uh, about 25 yards away that was in a trench coat with a ski mask crouched down and he had an AK and he was just kind of looking around. We could see him. He couldn't see us cause we had, had night vision. And, uh, so we, uh, communicated to the Marines that the problem was, is that where we were, which was kind of like this, mm-hmm. he's right here. And then there's a column of Marines two miles along right behind him. So, you know, him and, and a group of other guys, which as it would turn out, uh, a couple of Marines went to go to the bathroom out in a field behind this little tree line that was paralleling the road and, uh, and stumbled upon a group of insurgents that were, uh, talking over and kind of dirt diving, literally like drawing a map in the, in the ground of how mm-hmm. they were going to attack us. And so they stumbled on them. They uh, zippered them up and opened them up. They come came running back, uh, wounded, and and then that's that's when everything just kind of went. To but we didn't know that at the time. Uh, we knew that there were contacts in between us and the Marines, so we uh, radioed to them like, "Hey, you know, we're the suppressed fire. We're going to be, uh, you know, taking a, f- a few shots. So don't don't light us up." And so we take care of him and and uh, some of the other guys that were uh, part of that that little crew, and then moved our way through. So you guys. Kill him? Yeah, we did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, they couldn't see, so you just oh, shot them. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we took care of him, and, and there were a few other guys in the uh, in, in the field uh, behind him that, that uh, as we moved through, were were taken care of, and then uh, that, and so that was basically it. But the uh, not knowing what was going on at the time, um, there was a an eighty four millimeter rocket that was shot from uh, from the Marines into a it's called a technical, which is a uh, like a, a little uh, jeep or, or small light pickup with uh, with an anti aircraft artillery piece in the back, shitload of rounds, and so this rocket hits that, it blows up, and now all these uh, anti artillery uh, rounds are blowing up, kind of uh, sympathetic detonation wise, and so we thought we were being you know overrun, and we thought it was either grenades or RPGs oh. or whatever, and and so stuff's blowing up everywhere, and. And, and that, I think, is kind of a classic example of even though that environment is supremely chaotic yeah, and, uh, and, and just, you know, a lot to kind of sift through or process, we all kept our calm and, and made sure that we were going about business the right way mm-hmm. and, and nobody panicked or did anything stupid or, or what have you, which is, is easy to do in that environment because, right. of, you know, you don't know what's going on. And mm-hmm. so had we just opened up and started, you know, waylaying and, and throwing a ton of rounds downrange, we would have shot a bunch of Marines and they would have shot back at us, mm-hmm. uh, you know, which does happen sometimes, unfortunately. But um, but I think, you know, again, that that calm under pressure component is a big uh, is a big takeaway from training. Wow. Uh, and when did you get into the canine training? Because you're a huge advocate of training dogs. Yeah. So uh, on that same deployment um, up in that same area, there was uh, there were a group of Marines that had a bomb dog with them. Uh, and for me, that was the that was the inspiration is that we didn't have dogs with us. Um, the the scenario that they were in, uh, we'd been in a similar similar scenario of just you know doing direct action missions of of taking down targets, and this dog saved a bunch of Marines' lives. And for me, that was you know just again the the kind of catalyst that said, why are we not using dogs? And and from that day forward, I uh, just couldn't get enough of it and and have been doing that ever since. So wow. So you train dogs how to. Uh, I mean, not specifically to, uh, but apprehension training or, uh, you know, bite work training is, mm-hmm. is part of it. Um, 
Uh, I do detection work. I do uh, personal protection dogs. I do, you know, basic pet obedience with, you know, this team dog on dot uh, pets and online training site, mm-hmm. even for normal everyday house dogs. I mean, my goal from a dog training kind of big picture aspect is, is to try to bridge the gap between humans and dogs in, in terms of how they think and how they learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there, while there are some parallels, there's some significant disparities. Uh, and that's where most uh, normal dog owners screw up is, is two, two main things, which is not putting yourself in the dog's shoes and, and not thinking like a dog. Uh, and then just not being consistent and putting the time in. Uh, yeah, because dogs are really, really smart. Some well, of them, yeah. They're, 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 they're simple is the thing. And, and I think where, where humans screw up uh, more often than not is not thinking like a dog. And, and the most simple way I can put it is if you think about just in the, you know, however many minutes we've been sitting here, the amount of information that we've exchanged is pretty significant, but it's all verbal. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of body language or action that's taken place in, in our exchange of information thus far has been almost zero. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you think you think in a language, you dream in a language when you're, you're problem solving, you have an internal monologue that, that is the English language for us speaking English um, that you work through to figure things out. Now, now try to imagine being a dog where that doesn't happen, right? There's, there's no inner voice. There's, there's no thinking in a language whatsoever. So for them, Everything is a simple association. It's A plus B equals C. Uh, a good example of that would be, um, you know, grabbing a leash is A. Connect it to the dog's collar is B equals C. We go for a walk. So when that formula is correct enough times for that dog, the presence of A will equal the anticipation of C. So he's getting ready to go on the walk. Right. So now, now just A being present equals C. And so they're making that simple association. But it's that way with everything. It's... Mm. Uh, you know, food, it's, it's going to the bathroom, it's, you know, pulling on a leash, it's dog reactivity, it's sitting down and going to a place, jumping on people. All of those things can be reduced down to that A plus B equals C uh, formula. If C is something you want, then you make A plus B equals C enough times to where that formula works in the dog's mind. Mm-hmm. If C is something you don't want, i.e. pulling on a leash, which I'll talk about in a second, then you make A plus B not equal C enough times to where the dog stops expecting it. Hmm. Um, if we use the leash example, I'm going to take the leash, you know, take it off the wall, wrap it around my waist, click it to his, uh, to his collar, unconnect it. And then I sit on, sit down on the couch. And now the dog's looking around, you know, like, well, what the fuck just happened? You know, <laughs> like his mind is blown, yeah. uh, and, and has no idea how the world works all of a sudden. <laughs> uh, you know, his, the math is wrong. And so, um, you know, if you do that enough times to kind of, deprogram that formula in the dog's mind then they stop being an obnoxious uh you know pain every time you grab a leash pulling Mm. pulling on a leash another example uh you know most people will say no slow down stop they'll you'll start pulling on the leash and tugging and and fighting with the dog or nagging uh you know pulling on the dog's neck something as simple as just stopping uh you know and so i stop start to walk again he starts to pull i stop you know that a plus b equals c formula works again and then Mm. You know, the dog understands that every time that there's tension on his neck, then then the walk pauses, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and so instead of saying no or stop, which don't mean anything uh, to him if you haven't taught him that to begin with, uh, you know, just your actions are going to dictate to the dog what uh, what the right formula is. And What about the jumping? Because my dog, he doesn't do it to me. Mm-hmm. He doesn't jump on me at all. But he'll jump on everyone else. Mm. Yeah. So a, a good a good way to combat he knows I don't like it. Yeah. A good, a good way to combat that is twofold. I mean, one of the first things I do with any dog, 
uh, is feed through training. And so, you know, however much you're feeding, let's say it's two cups of dog food, you put it in a pouch, um, you've got your clicker and you just, as soon as you let the dog out of the crate or outside or whatever, uh, you're basically ignoring the dog and waiting for him to make eye contact with you. And then I'm going to mark it, give him some food, and then I'm going to walk away and ignore him. I'm not saying his name. I'm not looking at him. I'm not doing anything. And I'm, I'm purposefully, uh, you know, like, uh, ignoring him um, you know and so taking that that approach the dog very quickly realizes that okay when i look at my owner i get fed when i go you know if i'm checking something out on a fence line and i walk over to him i get marked and rewarded that way um you know that that resonates very very well in that same a plus b equals c thing so I'm, right. te I'm teaching him to pay attention to me once he'll pay attention to me then you know for the jumping up using a dog bed as a place command. So before people are coming over, just teach him to go to a, his dog bed and, and you can call it place or home or whatever you mm -hmm. want. Uh, in that same manner is that I'm teaching him to go to it and he's getting fed because he's going to his dog bed. And then I, I teach the command of, of, let's say it's place. So now when somebody comes over, I'm going to send him to his dog bed. I'm not going to let him mm -hmm. greet people at the door. I'm not going to let him, you know, just wander around on his own. He has to stay there. And so uh, something that simple where you're just, positively reinforcing him going to a, a specific piece of of property or territory and, and not allowing him to to get up and, and jump up on people if you've got a dog that the stimulation of somebody that coming through the door is so high uh, to where you know that that breaks his his long stay on the dog bed use a leash inside your house mm -hmm. uh, and similarly similarly walk him back over there put him <clears throat> down uh, mark and, and reward him him eating and, and just going through training sessions like mm -hmm. that biggest thing is just being consistent and again putting yourself in the dog's shoes where where you're thinking about it the way that they would think about it mm. and what about dogs that are aggressive they attack other dogs or humans so same thing um you know so many people i think one, one of my biggest uh, i guess i would call it a pet peeve with um you know p people if they've got a dog that's reactive you know I, every time my dog's on a leash he wants to you know go after other dogs or vice versa is that they start talking about socializing and how important it is to socialize your dog with other dogs or kids or whatever. And, and I disagree with that. And that, uh, you know, to me, I, I don't want my dog to interact with other dogs or strangers, kids, whatever. What I want them is to tolerate them and ignore them and to be right next to them and, and completely ignore them. And the way that you do that is just like I, I mentioned earlier with the, the feeding through training is getting, getting them to focus on me first when nothing is going on. Right. Mm -hmm. So most people will, address the problem when when the dog's mind is at 12 out of 10 i.e they're on a leash and they're they're reactive around other animals that's not the time to try to train that out of them you want to take you know a, a few steps back and say mm -hmm. okay first I, I need if i can't get the dog to pay attention to me when nothing is going on mm -hmm. there's zero chance i'm going to get him to pay attention to me when another dog's barking at him and trying to get at him and so right. first things first get him to pay attention to you and then slowly introduce stimulation at a lower level let's say it's uh something as simple as like a, a bucket if you go in your backyard and, and there's nothing there and you, you go through you know a couple of weeks of feeding through training like i'm talking about and then you just take a home depot bucket and set it out there like that's going to be distracting he's going to he's going to want to look at it smell it piss on it whatever uh, and so i, I want to use that as kind of the bridge to to slowly ramp up uh that stimulation get him to ignore the bucket mm -hmm. and pay, pay attention to me then uh, maybe it's another family member that's often in the corner of the of the you know, classroom or backyard, wherever you're doing your training uh, and, and getting them to ignore that. And then maybe it's a dog on a fence line or, you know, maybe even scatter food out there if the dog's not crazy food driven and get them to ignore that and come back to me. And, and uh, you know, 
slowly ramp up and, and gradually get, uh, you know, to where you, you've got them around there. Cause no different than, you know, trying to take uh, kids to six flags and teach them algebra. Like if you're trying to teach your dog something when they're in that super high stimulated environment, they're, they're not going to listen uh, right. and, and they're not even, it's not even going to register. You're either going to have to punish them to a point where it, it gets their attention, which is usually pretty significant, uh, or they're just going to completely blow you off. And now you've, you've lowered yourself in the, in the uh, family hierarchy. And that's, uh, that's not good either. So right. you seem like you were able to pivot very well out of the military. I feel like a lot of people struggle after they serve. Yeah. How were you able to pull that off? Uh, the short answer is is the meaning of life is purpose. Is mm. that uh, you know I think that that's that's key with everybody. I get a, a lot of uh, advice questions from other uh, you know veterans getting out that are struggling that don't know what they want to do. And to me, uh, that that is the the single biggest uh, thing that either makes people happy or makes them miserable is is having a reason to get up in the morning. Mm. Uh, and being passionate about what you're doing. And for right. me, it was dogs and, and owning a dog company that provides dogs to the military, to police, to personal protection, high net worth individuals, you know, providing training now that the food treats and, and supplements and, and all of the different products that I have that are dog related. Uh, you know, for me, it, it's a chess game and, and it's something I, I love. I'm passionate about and, um, you know, it, it, it's a dream come true for me, really. I feel fortunate to have had that because a lot of people don't. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people listening may say, you know, what if I don't know what that is? And to me, the, there's a very simple solution to that, too, which is, is pick something where you're volunteering to serve something other than yourself. Like mm. if you have no idea what you want to do, at least pick something. I don't care if it's Boys and Girls Club. I don't care if it's a soup kitchen, you know, helping the homeless, walking, uh, you know, shelter dogs. I mean, whatever it is, pick mm. something where you're at least a net positive on society and, and you're not miserable and you're doing something that's providing a service. And, and most of the time that will lead you to something that, that you either stumble on or, or that is, you know, what you decide you want to uh, make your life's work or purpose about. And, mm -hmm. uh, and even if you spend your entire life never figuring that out, you've done something good and, and you've helped other people the entire time. Mm -hmm. So, right. um, you know, to me that that's, unquestionably you know for me why it was very uh very simple i'm not going to say it was easy because it, you know there were plenty of struggles starting a business and having a young family and uh and, and all of those things but uh but the, the process was very simple and i never got into the you know i'm depressed and have ptsd and, and i don't know what i want to do and let me turn to booze or pills or like i i've just never i never had had to yeah, kind of go through that's that. rare yeah, yeah a lot most, of people. most getting out of that situation is it is suffer from PTSD. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate. So that, you don't uh, feel like you have any PTSD or you ignore it? I mean, I, I, I will say this. I mean, I, you know, I, to me, I think it's kind of relative or subjective in that. I mean, everybody has been through things that are traumatic. Everybody, Facts, yeah. you know, and, and what is traumatic to one person may not be to the other and mm -hmm. vice versa. So. Uh, you know, to almost kind of value or devalue somebody's trauma over somebody else's, I think does everybody a disservice. That's the first thing. And the mm -hmm. second thing is, yeah, I don't think uh, it's good for anybody, myself included, to ignore things that they've been through. But I also don't think that you should trip over the obstacles in the rearview mirror and let them continue to, to make you stumble over mm -hmm. and over. Is yeah. Understand what happened, process it, deal with it, however, uh, you know, feel it, let it, let it affect you how it's going to and then move past it. You know, I mean, to, to sit and and dwell on it and think about it and, and let it continue to, to make you stumble is 
uh, is counterproductive. And, and one of the things I see in, in the veteran communities a lot is having lost a lot of friends, uh, you know, really, you know, guys that you're even closer than your own family with, that you've been through things that, you know, nobody else would understand, et cetera, is that, you know, they, they miss those guys and, mm-hmm. and they, uh, they, they feel sorrow and, and despair and, and depression because their brothers are gone. Mm. Um, you know, I, I've lost dozens of, of guys who were, uh, I would consider good friends of mine. Um, and to me, the, the, the simplest way that I've always dealt with that is, is on its most root level is, is I think if the roles were reversed and, and it was me that was gone and I had an ability from the afterlife to look and, and I saw this guy who's here feeling sorry for himself or, or feeling sorry for me and being depressed and turning his back on his family and being a shit bird drinking and, and abusing things and, and doing nothing with the opportunity that I don't have, I would reach through and slap <laughs> out of him for it. And, and so, uh, you know, for me, it's that simple. It's that, you know, like I, I was given a gift of I'm still here and they're not. And, and to me, I, I'm going to honor those guys mm-hmm. by maximizing every single opportunity I have to the best of my ability. I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to squander it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm damn sure not going to sit around and feel sorry for, for me still being here. And I think, you know, for anybody that, that uh, finds themselves in that position, uh, that's the best way to honor guys. And, and it doesn't have to be military. It can be friends that you lost mm-hmm. for whatever reason, family members, is that if you want to honor them, take advantage of the opportunity that, that they no longer have. Mm. Right. Be successful and make them proud. Yeah. I yeah. like that. Yeah, Absolutely. I love that. Mike, what's next for you, man? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's really the, you know, the, the dog food, uh, you know, it's just the, the team dog. The online training, the dog food is, is kind of the big, mm-hmm. uh, big pivot from service to product, basically, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's kind of the, the long game is just building and, and kind of scaling the, the dog food and treats and supplements company and, and getting it to a point where it's, uh, you Massive. know, kind of rock and rolling. But. Right. Let's touch up on that real quick. So a lot of large breeds only live to like seven to 10 years old. Is that, do you, is that due to a poor diet, you say? It's for sure part of it. Um, I think two things are, are at play. One is substandard breeding practices. Unfortunately, here in the United States, a lot of people breed dogs. And I'm, and I'm not saying don't breed dogs. Like I, I believe in, in freedom and liberty. And if you want to breed, breed your dogs, do it. Um, but, you know, I, I don't like to tell people what to do any more than I like to be told what to do. But, um, but you know, in, in terms of breeding, if you, if you don't have a standard, if you're just breeding a dog because, well, it's my pet and I love him. And, you know, there's a, the same breed, you know, four doors down and, and, you know, let's try to make some money and have puppies. Uh, the outcome genetically is generally, uh, less than, um, desired mm. when you're doing that. I mean, if you think about in the last hundred years, I mean, I've got a, a an AKC book of dogs. It's called from uh, like the 1920s that has a, a breed standard for every single mm. breed. And if you look at what the, what the standard is now, uh, it's a far cry from what, what most breeds are. And, and really, you know, in the United States, you've got, uh, the American domesticated house dog and then, and then they have different paint jobs. I mean, that, that's really what it is because, you know, whether, I mean, pick a breed, like if you look at what they were originally bred for, uh, as opposed to what they're, they're bred for now, now yeah. it's, it's, uh, almost an embarrassment, you know, and, and, uh, you know, again, like I'm not, uh, you know, downing, you know, a companion animal, like they, they serve a, a purpose and, and to me, it, it's important to, to value, you know, dogs roles in everybody's lives for different reasons. However, um, when you're not maintaining a standard, 
um, and you're just breeding either for looks or, you know, for, uh, you know, designer markings or certain physical attributes mm -hmm. that are very specific and non-functional, um, then you, you really downgrade the breed's virility and, and longevity and, and overall health, um, mm -hmm. you know, in every way, really. And so that's a big part of it in conjunction with just like, you know, us as human beings. Uh, I saw a stat talking about, you know, colon cancer in, in like 20 to, to 40 year olds has gone up 200% in the last wow. couple decades or the last you know decade. And, mm -hmm. I, and I, I think it's largely because we're, we're eating a lot of things that we're not supposed to eat, you know, that your, sure. your body just isn't designed to, to ingest. And unfortunately with most dog foods, it's, it's that same thing. And, and that's really, uh, you know, team dog was born out of, um, my frustration with the dog food industry of going through this with so many different brands mm. where a brand would come out and it's a little mom and pop boutique kind of a joint that, you know, really high quality food for a year or two years, maybe, maybe five. And then, you know, one of the big guys uh, gets threatened by them or sees this huge customer base that's super loyal and valuable. They come in, they buy them out and they, you know, buy their customers and mm. their brand and, and now make it in their, in their house and put a bunch of garbage in it and fillers and what have you. And so, after going through that with, you know, six or seven good brands at first that, that ended up going to shit, I just said, you know, I'm going to make my own and I'm going to make it exactly how I want it and, right. and spent a couple of years kind of beta testing it on, on a lot of different dogs in a, in a host of different working capacities. And, uh, and now, now here we are. So that's so relatable. Whenever I go grocery shopping for my dog, it's like mm -hmm. I'm dodging landmines. Yeah. Like all the food's so unhealthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only stick to one. You can't even go to Walmart. None of those are. Good. Yeah, no. I only go. I only feed my dog Victor. So Victor, as a classic example, uh, we fed fed our dogs Victor for a number of years. Mm -hmm. A Brazilian company bought them out. It was made in Mount Pleasant, which is about an hour from where my kennel facility is. It was a great food mm -hmm. until they were bought out, and then a, a, a PE firm bought bought them out again. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now it's it's a very different formula than. Yeah. Well, see, mine has a he's a, he's a bully, so he has a particular skin allergy. Mm -hmm. So it's the same. Uh, was it like salmon and rice or yeah. fish and rice or something like yeah. that? So that's they're the only one who has it. And yeah, wow. he doesn't. You know, it, it doesn't affect his his coat. So yeah, you know, yeah. I will say uh, this brand. Uh, we we do have a salmon and herring meal blend. That, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. That, uh, so is yours real food or is it kibble? It's kibble. Oh, it's kibble. Yeah. I, I've, I've been mm -hmm. gone through the full gamut mm -hmm. of uh, doing raw food and dehydrated mm -hmm. and all different uh, types. And, and again, you know, there's 90 million dog owners plus in the United States alone. 99% of those aren't going to feed raw food, even if it is, you know. I'm not doing it. Yeah, I mean, they, most people aren't. It's, it's expensive. It's expensive. No, the cost is too high, bro. Cost is high. You have to feed them raw yeah. food every day yeah. and, and it's it's inconvenient and, and i get <laughs> yeah. that and so you know for me it, it was okay yeah i understand that the overwhelming majority of potential customers are not going to feed this no matter how good it is no matter what you can claim no matter you know what results you can show from feeding it right so how can i maximize and make the biggest impact that i can with what most people are going to end up feeding anyway and so that's why i've, I've now transitioned or, or pivoted to, to dry food and then a friend of mine said if Raw food is killing human beings, and what do you think it does to dogs? In terms of, uh, as far as like the food that we're eating is not good for us. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I, how is it good for him? Yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean, like with anything, it boils down to where you're sourcing it from and how it's raised. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there, there's you know plenty of um, documentaries, you know, for and against everything. You know, whether it's yeah, a, you fact, know, pro yeah. pro vegan, anti vegan, mm -hmm. pro carnivore, anti carnivore. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the, the one kind of, I think, missing link with all of those studies is that it, it doesn't really talk, talk to or address how the food was raised. So if, if you're doing a, an anti-meat campaign and you're taking feedlot, you know, choice or, or select, you know, ba- barely passing the USDA's grading system from, from a feedlot where mm-hmm. there's 5,000 cows per acre, uh, where they're stressed out and pumped full of a bunch of shit, if, if that's the meat that your subject is eating on carnivore, that's not going to not going to do you well. Right. Same thing with with uh, vegetables too, though. If you're taking shit that's GMO hybrid, covered in fertilizer and pesticides <laughs> and whatever, but oh, I'm vegan. Like, well, you're you're poisoning yourself. Yeah, you know? So, yeah, I mean, definitely overlook that. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and so the, I mean, the reality of it is, is you know, what, whatever food your food is eating is every bit as important. Mm-hmm. You know, so if the food that your food is eating is, shit, then guess what? Uh, ultimately, you're still eating. Shit. I mean, mm-hmm. there's. There's healthy and, and unhealthy versions of everything out there. So uh, I think that that's the single biggest component that gets overlooked, and um, which is why I, I've exhausted so many different avenues in sourcing the ingredients that I, I source and where I source them from mm-hmm. uh, for the formula of food. And, you know, you can look at our reviews and, and see case after case after case of people that have tried nine different foods and three of them were prescribed from a vet. Uh, you know, and, and now they, they switched to, to this food and, and it cleared up. I mean, pick, pick anything, whether it's skin issues, teeth issues, uh, you know, stool issues, impacted anal glands. I mean, you name it. Wow. Uh, so um, obviously I'm I'm a big proponent of it, but, <laughs> but not just because I own the company. I mean, again, like I, I didn't start out thinking, oh, I want to own a dog food company. Like yeah. that, that was never something I ever thought I would do. And, and, and I did it really out of necessity. I mean, as much as I'd love to say it was... Um, not reactionary. It, it was, you know, mm-hmm. it, it was a hundred percent because I was frustrated with going through this process over and over. And so, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to ensure that every single ingredient going in there had a purpose. None of them were were fillers or or just to to help increase profits or bottom line or, mm-hmm. or what have you. Um, you know, and I'm I'm very proud of of the product that we've made. But love that. Can't wait to see where you take it. I'll try some out for my dogs. Yeah, I'll awesome. yeah, uh, be happy to send you guys. So. Awesome. Any closing comments? I just appreciate you, you having me on. I know it's a little bit outside the wheelhouse, but I love what you're doing. I think this this platform, the guys that you have on, speaks for itself, and um, I'm honored to be here. So I appreciate you having. Me. Appreciate Thanks so much, Mike. By. Yeah, Wayne. Thank you guys for watching the Digital Social Hour. Thanks for tuning in. See you guys next time. Peace.